Good afternoon. This is fun. We get to have a little study time about parenting, and um, man, what a great subject. We're all, it seems like we're always talking about parenting and family life, and uh, that's really never-ending. Even though I'm a grandparent now many times over, all we ever talk about, my, my boys and my daughters and uh, even the young ones coming up, it seems like we're talking about family life. And uh, what is happening in our culture? I mean, what is going on in our culture? We know the world has fallen. We know the first couple, Adam and Eve, uh, were broken. And every one uh, of their prodigy is broken. Um, progeny, rather. And so we are in trouble if we do not understand what God designed for the family and then how to... Encourage our hearts in the truth and stand firm in these things. So that's what we want to talk about. So in this first session, I'll just cover some groundwork probably familiar to you, uh, but maybe a few things that will be helpful. And then uh, in the second session, I want to kind of dig down a little bit some of the more uh, common challenges that we face and are facing today and what the Bible has to say about them. Uh, Genesis 1.28, let's start there. Very, very simple, straightforward. I start here because I want to say at the outset that God's plan for the family is that it was designed to be and is designed to be the smallest social unit uh, for a society. If a society is going to be strong, it's going to be rooted in this small social unit called the family. In Genesis 1, verse 28, God blessed them and he told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The earth was to be filled not with cities first, not with communities first, not with um, little um, fraternals first, but it was to be filled with families, begetting families, and each couple, you know, as a father uh, as, as a son leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, you have another social unit. So if the family breaks down, communities and societies and the proliferation of strength across the globe breaks down. That's, it's that simple. Uh, maybe if we could just simplify the diagnosis of what's happening today, the family's been assaulted now for decades in our culture in America, and so we're reaping what we have sown as a nation. If you assault the family, if you assault marriage, you assault... The taking care of the children that you have, if, if you make assaults on that, uh, the nuclear family, traditional family turns into some sort of bizarre, twisted uh, idea of the family, the society will crumble. That is true historically, but it is clear from this passage that that is true. God blessed them, Adam and Eve, as a contained family, a single unit, and he told them to fill the earth. So the family is assumed as a God-designed community unit. Within the family, it's, it, these are just important concepts to sort of umbrella everything that we're going to say so that if you ever get the argument, well, you know, families can do things different. No, no they can't. If society is going to be strengthened, even in the common grace of God outside of Christians, uh, unbelievers can experience strength of communities if they will take care of the family. It is God's designed community unit. It's self-contained. It's established when one man, under the care of his father and mother, leaves that context at the time of adulthood and is joined to 
a woman who's been blessed by her father and mother, and so they come together into their own family unit. Those two, even without children, are recognized as their own complete family. And that new family has been blessed by God through the blessing that was given to Adam and Eve, and they now, if God allows, will bear children. Those children then will expand the family and be, be now the potential for the next generation of families. So the family is where society begins. Being the first social unit, it is the foundation then of any community. It is the place where every necessary life discipline is developed. I find that just so genius on God's part. Uh, Just every wonderful life discipline is developed within the context of a family. It is also the place, and God knew this, it's also the place where sin is either allowed in, in to, to, to the destruction of human beings and allowed to spread powerfully, or it is curbed by the common grace of God in an unbelieving family's life or the special grace of God in redemption in a Christian family. It's curbed. So... The family's where it all begins. You either uh, perpetuate sin and it spreads powerfully to generations after it, or you protect the work of God in redemption in the family. Look at Psalm 78 for a moment. Uh, we'll make our way through a few passages here at the beginning. Notice Psalm 78, this, this uh, psalm uh, it's, a, it's a masculine of Asaph, and it was intended to, to talk about the passing of strength from dads and moms to children, and Israel was chided for not passing it. So maybe if we could just sort of set the urgency here right now. Notice verse 1. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I'll open my mouth in a parable, and I'll utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. So here you have Asaph talking about the passing of old sayings. What he's talking about there is the truth of God. God gave his people the truth, and it was to be passed down. And so Asaph's reflecting on the fact that these sayings are not new, they're not innovative, they're the same basic truths that get passed from one generation to the next. By the way, whenever a new parenting paradigm comes up, or whenever a new new paradigm for family comes up, I get nervous. Because I'm thinking, wait a minute, in all of ancient history with God's people, these were dark sayings of old. These were things that should be passed down and should not change. And that's what Asaph's referring to here. We heard them. We've known them. Our fathers told them to us. Look at verse 4. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. So we're going to pass on from generation to generation what God has done, who he is and what he has done. It isn't just going to be some gospel presentation. That's true enough, but it's going to be everything God does. My wife and I have a a, a testimony about how Christ has saved us and all of our children and all of our grandchildren and all of our cousins and all of their niece, our nieces and nephews, they all know the story. And we, every opportunity we get, we tell that story. 
In the spirit of Psalm 96, we tell of the wondrous deeds of the Lord. If you have not told your testimony to your family members as to how God has saved you, if it's been a long time, take time, do it. That's precisely what Asaph is referring to here, to tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. That became very compelling to me because years ago, my wife and I were in Cleveland for her sister's wedding. It was the first time I'd ever been around their family's heritage on the east side of Cleveland. So I was visiting homes and estates that had belonged to the family for a long time. And there's this one massive estate. Uh, it's really old and it's like, uh, I don't know how many square feet this big place is, but it, it has history. Pieces of it were brought over from England. I mean, it goes way, way back. And it's on this mountain area, this little hilly area. Well, I was exploring the inside and I found this little room in the middle of these um, hallways. There was a little door, I went through the door and it had a spiral staircase into a little library. <laughs> I mean, for a guy like me who loves books, I just closed the door behind me and went down in there. <laughs> I just disappeared. And it had a little lamp down there, and it was just, just this marvelous little room, and it smelled moldy, so if you had a mold allergy, you would have not been, been happy there. But I was happy in there. And I found a book on the shelf. I, I, it just literally blew my mind. It was a biography written by a great-great-grandson uh, of his great-great-grandfather who was a Protestant missionary to Hawaii to the island of Maui, he took care of the lepers as the first Christian Protestant missionary to Hawaii. And he was in my wife's family, all of whom were Catholic. And it just intrigued me, and so I read the whole thing. I sat there and just read the whole thing. And what was shocking was that the great-great-grandson did not understand his great-great-grandfather's uh, faith. The uncle who had tried to influence his nephews, he didn't, they didn't understand the, the faith. And it made me wonder, why is it that the generation to come wasn't told the praises of the Lord? You, you could lose your influence in one generation if you don't tell the story. Or just two generations, it could be gone. Your grandchildren might not understand how you got saved. And so Asaph warns of that here. Now notice verse 5, for he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments. The psalmist is thinking about the children not even born yet. My father used to say when he got saved and he was sitting us four boys down and discipling us, he used to say, I am I'm very concerned about your life, but I'm not even thinking ultimately about your life. I'm thinking about your children and your grandchildren, my great-grandchildren. And he was trying to embrace what Asaph was saying here in this psalm the generation to come that they might know and even the children yet to be born that they might arise and tell them to their children so now we're in third and fourth generation that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments verse 8 oh and not be like their fathers 
a stubborn and rebellious generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. There was a, there was a dumbing down that happened. They became dull in their heart. The fathers, dads, grandfathers, the men, the leaders of the family, they became dull. They didn't prepare their heart. They didn't think it was worthy. They weren't warned enough. They weren't sufficiently sober enough or alert. Their spirit was not faithful to God. You fast forward down to verse 21. Therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath, and a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also mounted against Israel, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Beloved, listen, if you don't pass this on, the generations after you will not have heard of this great salvation. Why? Because dads stopped believing it. They stopped trusting in God. Trials of life, the difficulties and hardships, generations of struggle, kids that stray, grandchildren that go off the rails, and dads became discouraged in Israel, just like we do today. And suddenly it, it became discouragement, despondency, stopping the story, not repeating it anymore, barely getting to church, barely praying. This is what happened in Israel. And he says, I, I don't want that to happen. Now let's just think about the family. We, we heard Deuteronomy 6 this morning. What a great text to read. The first thing you notice about this social unit, and as you think about your own family, and how you will continue to structure it and pass things down. The first thing you notice about the genius of God in family life is that it is an environment for insulated learning. The family is an environment where the child learns things, but they are insulated. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 6 and just look at it for a moment. There's an important phrase in there, and I know you have noticed it or probably memorized it, but when he says here to diligently teach these things to your children, he, sa- he mentions the, the typical way they referred to the, the everyday way of life. Notice verse 6, These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. This is speaking of filling your home with truth and talk of truth uh, through all the course of life. Now I know there are courses that teach you about family worship and some formal times to worship and things like that. You can do whatever you want. The Bible, Bible does not give any particular structure of family worship. Churches and denominations have done it through the years to try to bring hymnology and scripture reading and family time with dad leading his family. They've tried to do that for generations um, all to great benefit. But if, if you're looking for some regimen that is commanded in scripture, this is it right here. Through the milieu of life, we might call it, through the getting up and the going to bed and then all through life and all through your day, truth is to be diligently applied in family life. This is what is commanded here. Your children are to learn uh, as life comes at them 
in an insulated environment how to apply the scriptures to their life. My father picked up on this in our family. Uh, I, I, you know, I mean, obviously so much water was under the bridge by the time he got saved. My brothers were, you know, 13, 11, or, or 11, 9, 7, and 5. I was the 7-year-old. So we were well on our way into California culture, and my dad wasn't a believer, so I don't really remember much before he got saved. But after he got saved, it was, as I said this morning, radical change. One of the radical changes was he would constantly say to us kids, uh, go get a Bible. We want to see what God says about that. What does God say about that? What does he think about that? And it, it, it was everything. Every time we opinionized in the family, every time we spouted off an opinion, every time we heard an opinion, my father was so determined as a young man, as a young dad, to bring truth to bear upon every question that we could possibly have in home life. And so what it did is it filled our home with truth and a discussion of the truth all the time. Dinner table was great uh, because then I could sort of be in my role and my wife could kind of be in her role and at dinner time the kid, like, we could find out uh, how they went through their day and what were the challenges and even as tiny as three and four years old just a brief little discussion with them about truth and the simplest expression of it we would have that time and siblings were then taught to listen to the other sibling but without interrupting them so we could sort of begin to learn what it means to depend upon one another and in that environment of learning came this application of truth to all of life it just has to permeate your home and that was the intention here in Israel now I say insulated learning because kids are sinners they're born sinners and they're all over the map and and from the earliest expressions of their sin and rebellion you can tell if they didn't have parents and if they didn't have instruction and if they didn't have insulation, it would be a serious trouble environment. They would destroy their lives within a few days. So they're so dependent and so needy and that's exactly what God intended. He wanted them to learn in an insulated environment so that there would be the grace of measured consequences the grace of measured consequences. God intended that we would learn within the family structure so that as the truth is taught and applied in the home, sin is checked, sin is hemmed in and confronted, but it's, it's a softer, more ready soil. Sin is checked early, but the soil is softer. There's not enough time to be sophisticated in your sin yet. Children are little, and there's not enough time to get hardened yet. Uh, the gospel finds softer, more ready soil. The truth is applied in a way, and the heart is, uh, even if they have a strong will, they, they're young, and it, their ignorance drives them to parents. And so God intended that. It's a grace to have such measured consequences. If foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, it's, it's, one, it's wonderful that their foolishness is tiny, and of less consequence when they're little. Sometimes when a toddler is thrown a tantrum and a parent doesn't want to do anything about it, my, my wife will say to that young mom, um, imagine a hundred pounds on that, that tantrum right there. 
Right now you have an opportunity in an insulated environment with very small consequence to begin to check that behavior and deal with it. God intended that. Foolishness is gradual and, and therefore it's mitigated. It's not allowed to go unchecked. Furthermore, consequences are minimized. I like that. God was very kind. Children are protected from bearing the full weight of their misdeeds. Look, a temper tantrum at three years old is wicked. It's selfish. I know they're cute. I know your kids are cute. But when they're rebelling and, doing, and throwing that tantrum, if it were an adult tantrum, you get frightened because, because it's sophisticated wickedness and it's anger and it's resentment and it's hatred of all that is righteous and they go out into the world and do terrible things. Well, it's no different in the heart in a three-year-old. But wonderfully, God has made the, the context of family a place where the child doesn't bear the full consequences um, like they would out in society. The parents absorb some of that and work with a youngster. This is a marvelous design of, of the family. And that's how we ought to view it. We ought to check that stuff early, as we'll talk about in session two. We ought to check it. Um, because this is the insulated learning environment God intended, and it's, it's a wonderful grace to children. I've told my kids that all growing up when I was disciplining them. Look, <laughs> you're bearing some consequences you don't like for your sin, even in the teen years, but it is nothing like you're about to bear as an adult. The world doesn't care about you. Satan hates you. He hates Christ. He hates our family. And he will do everything he can to destroy your life. This is nothing compared to what's about to happen. And so I'm, I'm telling you it's buffered. Your consequences are absorbed by our relationship in a way that's reflective of the grace of God. And we know that because once you're an adult, the lessons that are never learned at home become terrible scars in the future if you don't learn them at home. Foolishness that is never curbed in a child becomes evil never satisfied in adulthood. And, and of course, consequences never embraced at home. If a child never embraces consequences at home as a learning tool, uh, it, it results in lifelong penalties that rob them of hope. So the family is a place of insulated learning because of this wonderful grace of measured consequences. And then in that same insulated environment, there's a grace of balanced training. Balanced training. Discipline is more balanced in family life by two unique parents, male and female differences, and different temperaments. It's marvelous the way the Lord has designed marriage to bring the nurturing um, instincts of the female gender and the sort of the strength and protective instincts of the male gender. Paul describes them in 1 Thessalonians as a, a mother is this nurturer and she's got great strength and she's got great conviction, but as a mother would, she also has powerful relational and nurturing instincts, different than a man. A man is the one who implores, Paul said. I implored you and I admonished you as a father and I tenderly cared for you as a mother. In a home, there is this wonderful grace of balanced training. Male-female difference, temperament differences, two unique parents. God brings that together in a unique way and children benefit from it. 
So family life has that wonderful thing as well. And if you're a single parent, God supplies the part you don't have with his grace. If you are by yourself parenting, uh, a woman came up to me a few weeks ago. It was an interesting question. She said, well, if I'm the single parent, I'm the single mom, I have to be both a dad and a mom. And I, I, uh, I asked her about that. What do you mean you have to be a dad? She said, well, we don't have a dad. We, my kids don't have a dad. What do I do about the fatherly role? I said, well, God supplies a unique kind of grace for what you're missing. You can't be a dad because you're a mom. <laughs> you can't be a man because you're a woman. Um, if you try to be a dad in the way that a dad is, you're, you're going to be missing some, some things, and I don't believe it's necessary biblically. God promises to supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So a special grace, an abundant, lavish grace is poured out, poured out on the godly single parent in order to be enough, sufficient for the transfer of that gospel ministry to that child. Uh, it's challenging, for sure. And of course, you have the church and wonderful leaders in the church and other women that come alongside the single parent. Sometimes it's a single dad, and you need, you need some good advice. If you are a single dad with daughters, you need good advice from godly women in the church. And if you're a single mom with sons, you need good advice from men in the church to tell you about sons and what they need uh, in their interaction with a mom. So again, just all that to say, this, the social unit, it strengthens communities, and the way that it does it is by bringing together, first of all, this wonderful insulated learning that takes place. I want to give you a second principle here, and I want to talk a minute about interdependent living. Not just insulated learning, but interdependent living in the family. I sometimes will say to young people, look, you, you didn't choose your particular family. You didn't choose its place. And this is true of all of us, but I like to tell it to young people because they somehow forget this. Teenagers especially, this completely, it's like there's a few years in there where they've lost their, their minds. Shall we say that? Their minds. <laughs> uh, I, I tell the teenagers, look, you didn't choose the place of your family. You didn't choose its bloodline. You didn't choose its history, its nationality, its strengths and weaknesses. You didn't even choose its common characteristics. You didn't choose the economics you were born into, the quirky personality issues, even the physiological aspects or specifics, the way you're wired, the physical features, the way you look, your intellect. You chose none of them. God sovereignly chose them. More, more than that, God put you in a family, not so you could use it as some staging point for your surrogate family among your peers, right? That's pretty much what happens if you don't teach your children. Otherwise, they start making friends, and suddenly they think their friends are their family, and your house is a bed and breakfast, right? It's a bed and breakfast, and the meals should be hot, and there shouldn't be a whole lot of complaining, and I should have my, my own room to close my door and do what I want to do behind closed doors, and you have no business invading. That's how, that's how the assumptions go. And I've, I've often said to young people, listen, if, if God chose your family, then you are interdependent within that group. You need them, they need you. God knew that. That's why he put you there. And you're there to learn in a protected environment 
And you're there to learn how to strive against selfishness. You're there to learn how to be more selfless in the midst of your family members. You're there to learn to meet the needs of others. Your family is where you experience human affection at at a profound level that God intended between blood relations that was given to you as a gift by God. And you're intended to grow through early life lessons without destroying your future. God gave your family for that. It's not a perfect family. It's full of sinners. But that was God's intention. So therefore, you're not independent. Sometimes even dads will say to me, I raised my kids to be independent so they could live on their own and do their own thing. And in one sense, I understand what dads are trying to say. I didn't want to raise someone who didn't know how to take care of their adult life. I get that. And some men are very good at that. And they raised kids that they would say are responsible because they taught them the things that make for responsible adult life. On the other hand, I, I hesitate to endorse those kinds of ideas because when a dad says to me, I raised him to be independent, I sometimes wonder if they've ignored this very important principle. Family members are put in the family to be interdependent. I need my family members, they need me. We are to see ourselves as utterly interdependent upon those relationships. You must have your siblings and they must have you. You don't have a choice. You must relate properly to your parents and they must deal properly with you. It's God demanded. You, you have no option. So what does an interdependent family look like? First of all, mutual sacrifice. Mutual sacrifice. Romans 12, 9 to 21. We we, just like in the church, we're called to outdo one another in showing honor. We're to give preference to one another. We're not to be hypocrites. And all those same things listed there in Romans 12, 9 to 21, you could take every one of those principles and teach them to your kids in the family. This is how we're to treat one another. Or Philippians 2, 3 and 4, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. These, these are the mutual sacrifices that we owe one another in a family. What does it practically look like? Well, when, when we were trying to implement these principles with our kids, we said, all right, <clears throat> encouragement, encouragement. You owe your siblings and your parents encouragement. You owe each other mutual praise for each other's achievements. If your sibling, different than you, maybe wildly different than you, achieves something, gains a victory, takes a step of advancement in their life, you owe them encouragement for that. Just being their sibling. Not only just being a human being, we owe encouragement to human beings because we're no better than them, but we definitely owe people encouragement. We're admonished to encourage one another. How about compassion? We owe each other compassion for each other's struggles. The reason there's so much unforgiveness and bitterness among siblings is not just because they're with each other all the time. That's, that's enough to lock antlers constantly. But it's because we do not learn to bring compassion 
to the struggles of someone else. Oh, we want it from them. You better be compassionate. You better forgive me for all my weaknesses. But don't dare imagine that I'm going to come alongside you in your struggles. No, the family is to be interdependent in the realm of mutual sacrifice, which involves praise and compassion, mutual confession of sin, mutual forgiveness of sin, and prayer for each other's needs. Every member in the family has to learn to pray for one another. Another area of this matter of interdependency is resource sharing. The sharing of resources, skills, talents to promote family unity and strength. If one sibling or one child has a talent that's just starting to show up, how can that talent be used to strengthen their siblings and their parents and home life and unity? Instead, often when kids are growing up, they just want to use all of it for their own praise and their acceptance among their peers. And the family, who cares about my family? Who, who cares what my family thinks? Or I'm not even interested in, in uh, blessing my family with my talents. No. In fact, this changes the perspective on chores, doesn't it? Chores, uh, it was just kind of the basic family framework's way of teaching children responsibility. But what if you put this biblical principle behind it? Hey, chores are just a way of expressing your diligence and your hard work and your labor, even your talent and skill, for the sake of strengthening the advancement of our family. You could ask it this way. What are you contributing to the advancement of your family? And I think young people ought to be asked that. Using your abilities to serve the needs of a stable home life. That's included in interdependency. And then equity. Lastly, required equity. Learning God's standard of justice from the Bible and upholding it which means you're going to have to defer sometimes, learning to defer to others. There is um, a way in which young people grow up and they think that they are only treated unfairly and everyone else is treated better than they are. Biblically speaking, that's, um, that's a, f- a foolish way of thinking. First of all, life itself isn't fair and God is sovereignly ruling over our circumstances providentially. So God's not unjust when he brings a trial into our life. Young people have to learn that. But equity between human beings in the family, look, we should always strive as a family to learn God's standard of justice and uphold what offends him and uh, uphold his honor and and not love what offends him but, but be against what offends him instead of taking things personally all the time. So again, this whole idea of interdependent living involves getting away from taking things personally and personal offenses. We have to learn that. That's just a lifetime of learning. But required equity is a part of the interdependency of a family. Okay, so now we just sort of Think about all these umbrella things. You got, it's the social unit God intended. It has the grace of insulated learning, which means measured consequences and balance between husband and wife, and all that's intended in the family. And then inter- interdependent living, which I think is, um, as you apply the scriptures, it ought to become the way that your children think about family life. 
That way, when they get with their peers and they're pressured to make their peers their family, they will know that while they may be attracted to that, they will know that's not the family God gave them on earth. They might make good friends, but they are just that. They're not to be compared with my family where I owe my family an interdependent interaction with them. God commands it. That's the family he gave me. That's where I pay attention and, and serve and build. I think that's a, that's a hard thing to teach young people, but it's essential to teach them. And when they start making friends and they invite friends into your home, that's what their friends ought to see, that the family is priority at when, it, when it comes to this interdependent dynamic. I think we're going to, I know we're going to be taking a break here in a moment. Let me just introduce this next section, and then we'll come back and we'll try to hammer this out in a way that gives us time for questions at the end. I want to talk a little bit about how we help our children with regard to the culture. I think one of the problems that we're having right now in our uh, families and the fears that they have is because we we live in a time when everything is up for grabs and being thrown at us and Bible standards are just being trampled and I called this uh, little couple of sessions today the family survival guide for a reason we have to think our way through how to best as we're passing on this truth how to best navigate what's coming at us Uh, for several months two years ago we did a critical thinking series on the family talked about a lot of these things i'm going to try in this next section to uh to bring it all into one session here sort of as a parental boot camp Uh, we're going to kind of call it a parental boot camp the survival guide and i want to talk about how we're to respond to the culture. Uh, I want to talk about teaching a proper biblical view of shame since that is being trampled in our culture. I want to talk about how we are to know the the enemies. The enemy is not uh, what sometimes we imagine that it is. And I want to get back to what the Bible says the true enemies are. And then I want to talk about the the battle area. What is the area of battle? What's the theater of war? Where are we doing warfare most critically according to the scriptures so that we don't get off track? We'll talk a little bit about uh, God's plan of attack and then after that, if if we uh, get that out enough, then we can have some time for some questions and kind of get to discussing it practically on the floor. I'm just throwing out principles here and passages, but what we really want to do is take that, and, and I know you have questions in your mind, so then we can just start discussing it and see uh, if we can flesh this stuff out in some practical ways in your home life, okay? So let's just take a quick break. Man, that hour went fast. Wow, okay. All right, we're going to take a, a quick break, maybe 10 minutes or so. We'll come back, and uh, I think there are snacks in the back, as we've been told. Go ahead now.